Today, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite church topic, money. That's right, money, money, money. And specifically, what I want to do is make an appeal to you, not today, obviously, but to make an appeal to you to give a free will offering to the multi-purpose building that we are building. And, uh, and uh, to, in, in other words, to build a multi-purpose building for your grandchildren. Let's put it that way. You know, oftentimes I think in church, we think of ourselves as audience members, consumers maybe, of religious goods and services. The professionals, had, it, it, the professionals dole it out and, and you gobble it up. But no, we are a covenantal community. I'm not asking you to donate to build a multi-purpose building. I'm reminding you that we have to build a multi-purpose building. It will be for you and for your children and your grandchildren and by God's grace, even their grandchildren. We can give a Christmas present to our great-grandchildren right now. That's right. We might never see them. By God's grace, we will see them. But even if we don't see them, they will be playing and growing and learning and being discipled in a facility that we gave them. That's our goal. Amen? So we got to build it well. It's got to be built to last, et cetera, et cetera. But that's our goal. And that's why I want to preach this one sermon on uh, free will giving, on um, coming together as a community to advance the kingdom. Amen? All right, well, let's look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's a covenantal community. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but just to be sure, this is not communism. Uh, They still believe in private property because God does. Um, But they saw all of their possessions as resources to be used strategically for the covenantal community. That's what um, Luke means when he says this. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. That's also the benevolence fund there they were funding. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. They, of course, were the officers of that first century church, and they were the ones tasked with properly distributing the funds. So Barnabas is a great example for us all. I dare to be a Barnabas this morning. Right? So, but, but first, before we get into what this passage is teaching, I want to get into what this passage is not teaching. Am I going in and out here? Maybe. What is this passage not teaching? Well, first of all, <clears throat> it's not teaching asceticism. All right. Let's say that together, class. Asceticism. There you go. We got that. It's not a word. What is asceticism? Uh, asceticism is living simply, minimalistically, 
and perhaps even, even foregoing the enjoyments of this world and the blessings of this life in order to produce holiness. That's technically what asceticism is. You can think of a desert monk who, for the, for the sake of holiness, he moves out to the desert and foregoes food and wine and marriage, hoping to live on a higher plane than the rest of society. Of course, he does not end up living on a higher plane. He lives on a lower plane because he is in violation of God's commandments. He is abdicating from his stewardship. He is abdicating from his calling. You can think of, and not to be too hard on the guy, he's a great preacher, but you can think of the OG of evangelical asceticism, and that's David Platt um, or um, Francis Chan, who sold everything that he had and moved off to some foreign country. I do not believe this passage is teaching asceticism. I think asceticism is incredibly dangerous and not a biblical philosophy. Um, In asceticism, less is more in the kingdom of heaven. Ascetics might appeal to Jesus' command to the rich young ruler to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. But you have to understand the historical context of that. I promise you, if Jesus went to the capital and addressed um, one of the senators, he very well may say to them, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor because it's all stolen, right? But he would not come to you necessarily and be like, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor because you would then say, well, then what am I going to live off of? Is the poor then going to sell everything off and give it back to me? Hot potato, right? No, no. Jesus had a specific calling for the rich young ruler who was a senator and a corrupt one at that there in the elite establishment in Jerusalem. So we can't um, make that a universal thing for all of us. But asceticism, that's, you know, I've kind of talked about the crazy side of it or the, the, the extreme side of it. Asceticism really is in our hearts. It really is. I've struggled with it, with it personally. I've believed, especially as a younger Christian, that it would be best to live simply and minimalistically in order to live a more holy life. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 23 that these, um, these hardships and this severity to the body does not produce any holiness whatsoever. You cannot maintain, you cannot experience victory over drunkenness by avoiding the wine aisle. It does not make you one more ounce holy. It in fact makes you less holy. The only way to have victory over sin is by the power of the Spirit of God using the means that he prescribes in Scripture, and asceticism is not one of them. Now, of course, we can fast from time to time, and it might be wise to do this or that from time to time, but asceticism takes on the philosophy that less is more. Liquidate, absolve, abdicate, give it away, give it away. Worst case, an ascetic will bail out of the world completely. But this is not good for his neighbors. This is not good for his calling. In Genesis chapter 1, God created us male and female. In the image of God, he created us. And he said, first things first, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over everything that creeps on the ground. We are called to exercise rule. We are called to, in modern day language, a stewardship. That is our calling, and we do not have the right to liquidate all of our assets in order to abdicate from that stewardship. Amen? Amen. 
I hope that makes sense to you. Now, a typical ascetic in modern evangelicalism, like myself, growing up as a, as a young man, feels guilty when he buys expensive things. You know, I, I remember um, I, I'd, I'd received a lot of money from selling my townhome back when the, the real estate market was soaring. I think that was 2004. I sold it, and I, and I got a $55,000 that was like six years income for me, okay? It was a lot of money. It was mind-blowing. And I wanted to tithe on it. And I tithed it to a pastor who was also a bivocational missionary to Romania. And he bought the nerve of this guy, a laptop. That's right. He bought a laptop with my tithe. I was so upset. I, I wanted to meet kingdom needs, not a laptop. You see, I had inside my mind some things that some wires cross. You know, I didn't quite understand. And I do believe what was going on in there was a little bit of asceticism and a little bit of Gnosticism and a few other things there as well. But I remember another, on another case, <coughs> as a young man, I saw a pastor's home and it was incredibly nice. Well, maybe not incredibly nice. It was upper middle class. And I judged him. That's right. It's still in my heart a little bit when I, when I see pastors living a certain way. I think, how can they be holy with all this money? Is it just deep down in there? No one ever taught it to me directly, right? A pastor never sat me down and said, here are the arguments for asceticism. Now actively and openly embrace them. No, it was just um, by default absorbed into me by modern evangelicalism. You see, an ascetic would balk at anointing Jesus' feet with oil, Especially expensive oil. I say, no, 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 that's for the poor. Let's liquidate that, literally. Let's sell it and use the cash for the poor. They might balk at spending a lot of money on a wedding ceremony. I used to think that was absurd. But we are celebrating one of the most important covenants that a man and a woman can make. I used to balk at spending money on funerals. Hey, throw them in a pine box, stick them in the ground. Why do we have to spend so much money on this? Couldn't that money be used for more practical things? See, I was operating, I think, on asceticism. Now, I'm not trying to, the whole sermon's not on asceticism, so I might just raise more questions than give you answers. But, um, but just be patient here. An ascetic would even uh, balk at building a nice church sanctuary. That was me. I'm describing my, my seminary self, honestly. To see a nice sanctuary, I would, I would probably feel guilty. You know, I remember one time someone was bringing down some pretty heavy judgment on us for buying some flat screen TVs. I thought, how can my tithe be used for flat screen TVs? And I tried to encourage them that we have to be able to read all together in the same place. And it's a practical and a good cost-effective way to facilitate our worship. It's a good thing. And they said, but we could use projectors. And I said, projectors cost three times as much. And they're like, really? Really? <laughs> right? We're trying to be practical here. But you see, there's just something down inside of us that feels like stuff is not good. It's less than, and we need to abdicate from it when we have been called to steward the earth and all the things in it. You say, but aren't we supposed to store treasure in heaven, not on earth? Sure, but how do you store treasure in heaven? You can't see it. You can't reach it. 
You store treasure in heaven by investing in the kingdom of God on earth. There is a portal down here on earth. It's called generosity, tithing, obedience, and it goes straight through to heaven. So it's not one or the other, it's both. See, but asceticism confuses all of these things. Ascetics, and, and I know some of you struggle with this because I've talked to you, and I know you, and I struggle with it as well. Ascetics are very often motivated by guilt. They feel guilty about everything. They feel guilty playing video games. This time is to be used unto the Lord. I said, but yes, but he does give you some time to enjoy, right? Even God takes a day off, and even in the evening, he takes some time to look at all that he's done and say, behold, it is good, and he gives 80 vacation days in his law. So, hey, it's okay to play video games, generally speaking. It's not a very marketable skill, so you don't want to spend too much time on it, but you don't have to feel guilty, you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel guilty taking your wife out for her birthday dinner and spending some real money. That's a way to cherish her. God likes big donations given to him. He likes offerings, I should say. And so does your wife. It's, it's fine. But the ascetic in us, the minimalist, the live simple, don't give goldfish to the kids in nursery inside of us, right? That ascetic thing inside of us, I really do think is not biblical economics. And it is certainly not what is taking place here. And if you read the rest of Acts, you can see that more clearly. But yeah, pastor, look at verse 34. I don't see how you can, you can, uh, you can uh, reject this clear teaching of the word of God. It's right there in verse 34. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds. Hmm. Now you see, but this is why I want to emphasize so much for you that reading is so important. You've got to teach your children how to read. Because you might read this and think, ah, you see they had land and they had houses and they sold them. No, it doesn't say that. It says those who had land and houses sold them. It doesn't mean that everyone with land and houses sold everything that day. And we know that for a fact because later in the book of Acts, they still have houses and land, right? <clears throat> Imagine the tragedy if we all liquidated everything that we have and gave away our children's inheritance and we gave it to the poor who very often don't know how to manage it. And then they in turn liquidated it and gave it back to us. Now, this is not teaching asceticism. This is something else here. It's also not teaching consumerism. Now, consumerism and asceticism are built on the same foundation. Um, and this text is not used by anyone to teach consumerism. <clears throat> consumerism is one of those things we all believe deep in our heart, but we never say it out loud. It's, another, it's the air we breathe. All right? uh, consumerism um, is anti-kingdom, anti-dominion, anti-faithfulness, anti-calling, anti-progress. Not because it abdicates by liquidating and handing off, but because of appetite. See, in consumerism, you don't invest the profits so that you might have more for the kingdom next year and so that your kids and their kids might have more for the kingdom in the future. You don't invest the profits. In consumerism, you eat the profits. And whether you give them all away, liquidating them and, and living the higher life, or you gobble them all up, they're gone either way. 
both consumerism and asceticism are really, they're two sides of the same coin, and they believe deep down that um, life is short, life is meaningless, the world is disposable, and the future is bleak, so get while the getting's good. Give it away, because you can't take it with you. It's asceticism. Gobble it up. Get yours. Because one day it's going to all burn. So whether it be asceticism or consumerism, we must, as a church, reject these false philosophies. And I hope you can, over the years, listen to more teachings and come to a greater understanding of what I'm really introducing here this morning. Right. The scriptures do not teach that life is short, meaningless, and the world disposable, and the future is bleak. The, life, the scriptures teach that while a man's life is short, what he does in this life can be extended beyond him to eternity. If you build with gold and silver and precious metals, if you build with those things which can pass through the fires, you are investing in heaven You are investing in the future. You are investing in the kingdom of God. Now, the third, and and this is the last false economic theory we're going to mention. I'm only going to briefly mention this because I don't think many of you are struggling with it. But that's communism. You know, that's the, the ugly stepsister of asceticism and consumerism. Asceticism and consumerism disdains the value of earth, whereas communism worships the earth put it that way. Communism disdains God and the spiritual realm. And communism is perhaps the most um, taught by this passage. This passage is used to teach communism quite a bit. But just real short, we know this is not teaching communism because there's no AK-47s in there. Um, and there's also no concentration camps or secret service agents. So definitely not teaching communism. All right, moving on. Um, so what is going on here? What is going on here? Well, the church is exploding in the book of Acts. This is what you've got to see. This is the main point of the book of Acts. It starts like a mustard seed planted in the ground of Jerusalem, there on Calvary, next to Calvary in the tomb. And that little mustard seed, oh, it sprouts up on the resurrection day. Amen. And then it goes out from Jerusalem to Samaria. That's the next region. And then it goes out from there to Judea. That's what we might think of as the state. And then from Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, by the end of the book of Acts, it doesn't make it to the uttermost parts of the earth, but it does make it to Rome, the center of the beast, the center of the kingdom of Satan, if you will. It makes it to Rome. And when you close the book of Acts, you see Paul has been in a jail cell uh, on home arrest, preaching the kingdom of God for two years in Rome. And he tells the, the people who are reading the book of Romans and other places, he says, oh, by the way, some of the members of Caesar's household greet you. You get it? This thing is on fire. This thing is growing. It's exploding. That is the point of the book of Acts. Now, today I can tell you that the gospel has reached the uttermost parts of the earth, depending on how you define that. But uh, I would define it, and I think I can make a good case that the uttermost parts of the earth would be literally the tops of the Himalayan mountains. That's as far as you can get from just about anywhere. And I, I would like to report to you this morning that there are Christians in Tibet. There are Christians in Tibet. 
There, in some of the most darkest of societies, where the kingdom of Satan ruled for thousands of years, there's Christian ministers handing out tracts. And we got a lot of work to do. Our calling is not just to, to uh, put it on a billboard in every town. Our calling is to disciple the nations. That's a big job. We've got a lot of work to do. And we've got time to do it. But it has gone out. It has exploded. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Acts. The gospel is exploding from Jerusalem. 3,000 people saved. 10,000 people saved. Wouldn't that be something? Right? Wouldn't that be something if God would do something like that? Wouldn't it be something if the church even believed that God does things like that? That's the point of the book of Acts. The church is exploding. And, and of course, the kingdom of Satan is reeling. The dragon is slashing his tail. And there's a lot of persecution. So a lot of people are having their homes stolen from them. A lot of people are losing their jobs. A lot of people are losing their reputations. That's what happens when persecution comes down on the church. And so the rest of the church members, what are they doing? They're selling off some of their assets to meet the needs of the other church members. It's not complicated. Later in the book of Acts, you find out that they're liquidating their assets to fund the missionary endeavors of Paul and other missionaries. That's what's happening here. Now, there's, there's one other thing, and it's, it's a little complicated to get into this morning. But do you remember in the book of Jeremiah when Jerusalem was about to be invaded by the Babylonians? This is interesting. Um, Jeremiah went out, he went to a title attorney, and he started buying some property. Now, would you do something like that? If you knew that the Chinese Communist Party was about to overrun Acadiana, if it were me, I'd be trying to sell my land, right? Be trying to get money while I can still get money. I wouldn't be trying to buy it, but I suppose you could buy it at a cheap dollar, right? A cheap rate. Everybody else is giving it up for stew, and you're getting the inheritance on the bargain, on the cheap. That's what Jeremiah did. He bought a bunch of land when Nebuchadnezzar was coming, when the market was low. Right? That was smart of him because he knew they'd be coming back. He practiced what he preached. He knew that God wasn't done with them, and that in 70 years they would return from exile. But here we see the faithful disciples not buying land. We see them selling land because there's no going back to the old Jerusalem. That's right. You see, Jesus had told them very clearly in Matthew chapter 24 and in the gospel of Luke that the Romans were coming to destroy this city. He said, when you see the city surrounded by soldiers, run to the Judean hills, flee on foot, don't look back, get out of town. And they did, and they were spared. But the persecution, and this is the most beautiful thing, I think, God used the satanic persecution of the church to help the church speed the process along. You know, when you're being persecuted, what do you do? You move out of town. And most of the Christians had moved out of town, and the few remaining left before the Romans ever got there. So part of what is happening here, and these are things we talk about in Sunday school, but these are kind of deeper understandings of the text. Part of what is happening here is that the Romans are coming. The old Jerusalem is out and the new Jerusalem is on its way. And so they're selling off the land. Make sense? Makes sense. Good. So anyway, ultimately what I want to apply today is that these Christians were using what they had strategically for the kingdom and for the future of the kingdom. That's what I want you to take away this morning. Um, and so let's just mention this, and I, I think this might be sort of a, a duh statement, 
But um, I think this is an important observation. They had assets. Hmm, it's profound, isn't it? I worked all week on that. That's right. <laughs> you know, we often look at the, the, they sold the assets to fund the ministries and to fund the benevolence fund, etc. Oh, no, no, let's go a little bit deeper. They had assets. Now, where did they get assets? Well, they bought them with margins, with money that they had left over after the end of their paycheck. You see, they weren't ascetics. They weren't consumers. They had assets. Now, they also had assets because their parents had given them assets. And their parents, and their parents, and their parents. Some of them had a lot of assets. His name was Barnabas. He had so many assets that he was able to fund massive missionary endeavors. Isn't that something? But will your kids have assets? If they are called upon to leverage their assets for kingdom advance, will they have any assets to leverage? Or will they fall upon the graces of others? You see, that's an important question to ask. If you don't repent of consumerism and asceticism, your kids will have no assets. And they really should. You know, Proverbs says that a wise man saves up an inheritance for his children's children. That's pretty wise, right? Listen, we can do that by building this facility. We really can. Not all of you may uh, dunk a basketball in there, okay? But we can build a facility to worship in, to eat meals in, to have weddings in, to have whatever we want to do that, that, uh, that embell- embellishes and supports our covenantal community. And it is a community. We have a society, and we do society things, and so we need space, especially in the summer. And we need air conditioning, and we need screens with words on them, all of the above. We can invest in our children's children. We can leave an inheritance for them if we can build this. Now, here's the thing. And I wanted to mention this at the beginning of the sermon, but I forget sometimes to do some things. But um, this week we got the permit, and that's a miracle. We need to say all amen on that. We got the permit, and uh, I even took a selfie to commemorate it. It was a good time, all right? Uh, and we also um, talked to the dirt work guy. So we're, we're rolling, no, we're rolling. And we also sold this building. So you are now strangers in a strange land. This home, this building here is not our home. We're just a passing through. But we want to be good and honorable exiles, just as Abraham was when he was an exile early in the book of Genesis, honoring our landlords. Amen? Now, here's the other thing. We finalized the loan this week. That sounds good. And we thought it would be good. But the interest rates are impossible. They really are. The interest rate on this loan would functionally be 11.5%. Yeah, that's how I felt <laughs> in the closing room. Yeah. What that would be, if we took out a loan for $750,000, that would be $200 a day-ish in just interest payments. Which is not only unwise, it is impossible. Okay. Just mathematically speaking. So we're not going to do that. I've talked to the elders and talked to the other pastors. We are going to do our best to build this with cash. And by God's good graces, we just sold this building. And we've been saving. So we have about $700,000 in the bank. 
and the Dusan property is for sale for about 300000 So we'll have enough to do it. Just enough. Right. If we want to put a flooring in there, for example, buy chairs, etc., etc., we're going to get a little bit more money. And that's why I want to preach this one sermon. Normally, my, my spiel on money is tithe, and we'll have all we need. Here, my spiel is keep tithing, but consider giving a free will offering for your grandchildren. Well, for your children, because most of your kids are in the school already. Build your kids a gym, build us a sanctuary, and build our, all of our great-grandchildren a space to continue this covenantal community. That's sort of what I'm appealing to. All right, so let's go back big picture. Big picture. Um, I think I have a little bit more time. I was uh, reading earlier this week, or listening to a book, and it told the story of how Princeton was captured by the liberal progressives of the day. You see, Princeton was established as a Puritan school. It was established to train up ministers for the kingdom for the future. It was a great school. But the school was eventually captured by those who hated God. And the school to this day is still an institution of the kingdom of Satan. But when we look at the historical records and we dig into how that happened, we find that there was one man, his name was John D. Rockefeller, that funded the takeover. He strategically used his resources to advance the kingdom of Satan on earth. And he won. But what if each and every one of us, even if we start in this generation, would reject consumerism, reject asceticism, reject communism, obviously, and embrace a biblical economic philosophy of saving, of tithing, that the Lord might continue to bless us and bless us more and more abundantly, so much so that we won't have barns to put it in, as Malachi 3 says, and we, we put some in for the future so that our kids can pick up where we left off. If we can get to the third floor, what if they could make it to the seventh floor? What if in four or five or six generations, every name in this church was a Rockefeller for the kingdom of heaven who could strategically use your resources to advance and to win? This is what we are called to do. It will require repenting from asceticism and consumerism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It will require repentance from a lot of other ideologies that are in our hearts. But this is our calling in this world. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we fund it and we do it. Amen, Christ Church. Let's all stand as the musicians come forward. Pray and ask the Lord for help in this because this is not just an ideological issue. This is a practical daily living issue. And if there is no Holy Spirit, we have no chance. Right? So let's pray and ask him for help with this. Father, would you give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in such a way so as to increase our assets for the kingdom so as to leverage our assets for the kingdom today and for tomorrow. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.